Hello, so we have... and welcome to Live and Let's Discuss. I'm Jeremy. And I'm Noah. And we didn't just record this, only to find out it didn't actually record all of it. Yeah, definitely didn't happen. No, it didn't happen. Because we are professionals. Yeah, yeah. I look nasty. <laughs> welcome to Pasty Boy Podcast. Um, I, I happen to shave, for those of you... Well, none of you see the video for this. I shaved my beard off, and I feel naked and weird. But anyway, we're going to talk about For Your Eyes Only, both the, the book of short stories by Ian Fleming and the Roger Moore film from 1981. So we'll start with the short stories. It's made up of five short stories that were based on scripts for a 007 TV show that never happened. As... Um, this is the an era where Fleming was kind of running out of ideas. That's yeah, there was something going on with him because we got this for your eyes only, you know, based on scripts for the show. We got the Thunderball novel, obviously, based on a script he co-wrote with uh, Kevin McClory, the real life Bond villain. Yes. Before... Yeah, and then after that, we got uh, everyone's favorites by Who Loved Me, the experimental novel. And On Her Majesty's is weird, too. In a way, but I would say most agree that it's like him getting back on track. Yeah, and with, with Man with the Golden Gun being, like, back to business, but too little too late. Yeah, I mean, he died while writing it. Yeah, so, anyway. This book is based off of uh, five... This has five short stories... We're going to talk about all of them, although only two of them really have to do with the movie For Your Eyes Only. Um, the first is From a View to a Kill, um, which is probably one of the more action-packed ones of this. Uh, the a motorcycle dispatch for British intelligence is killed by Smash. Although I don't explicitly think they say it's Smash, but it's implied it's Smash. Um, which this would be the last story with Smash in it. Because moving forward, Spectre becomes the villain. Um, but Bond basically chases this guy on a motorcycle, finds a secret Russian base, and destroys it. That's from A View to a Kill. Yeah. And it has nothing to do with A View to a Kill, the movie. Although we'll probably... No Christopher Walken? No, no Christopher Walken. No weird karate in a singlet thong thing. No. What we do uh, get, the one thing I remember from the short story, uh, the, the base, the villain base, is like underneath like a forest. Yes. And it's kind of science fiction-y or like cartoony the way it's described. Because they have this thing you have on like U-boats, you know, where you look out of. Yes. It feels like Bond movie stuff. Yeah. But uh, next we get For Your Eyes Only, uh, a married couple that was uh, that were friends with M are murdered. Um, M asks Bond to investigate he meets the daughter of the deceased married couple who she's trying to get revenge and bond sort of aids her in that 
which is the overarching plot of the movie for your eyes only. Yeah. I would say pretty much everything from the short story is in the movie except the M stuff, which we will get to. Yes. Then what do we have after we have Quantum of Solace? Mm-hmm. Which is Bond is being told a story about a married couple where the wife cheats on the man over and over again, embarrasses him, and it's about how much this man can take. And then you find out what the quantum of solace means, which it's not the coolest thing in the world. It's a weird way of explaining how much someone can, can how much like pleasure to pain someone can take, really. Mm-hmm. And this short story was essentially Fleming trying to write, like, actual literature. Because I don't know how true this is, but apparently his wife invited, like, other authors and artists into their home at their dinner parties and stuff. And they all made fun of Fleming for writing silly, you know, spy stories. Which is, that that sounds like it's such a British way to insult someone. Yeah. But yeah, um, but yeah, quantum quantum is great. It's a really yes. different type of story because there's mm-hmm. pretty much no action. It's Bond in the mundane, and mm-hmm. he finds something interesting in that. And yeah, I think it's great. Just yeah, something very different. Yes, and we get none of that in the movie. No. Next, we get we go to Risico, which is also in for your eyes only. Just Bond thinks he's going after a villain, but it's not. They're just criminals. They're smugglers. He ends up raiding, like doing a drug raid, as I recall. And that's pretty much it. Mm-hmm. Which is Bond getting like double crossed, and it's like twist who's the good guy and who is the villain. Mm-hmm. Which is an element we also get in the movie for your eyes only, and pretty much never again except maybe world is not enough in the same thing yeah then then lastly we have the hildebrand rarity also known as most of the dark stuff that's in license to kill which is bond and a friend of his are asked to join the hildebrands or the is it the crests yeah, Milton Crest is Milton's the guy himself. Crest. Um, and his wife, Milton Crest, is just a jerk. He he like acts like a tough guy. He's said to speak like Humphrey Bogart. Uh, he beats his wife with a stingray tail when she misbehaves in his eyes. Um, he's really rude to Bond and his friend, and. This is when when they they say they're looking for a fish, they're going to kill it and stuff it and put it in a museum. Mm-hmm. So Bond ends up catching this fish for him, only to find that evening that the fish has been shoved down his throat. <laughs> and Bond finds this dead body and he like contemplates what to do with it. Also, he contemplates domestic violence. I have to point out, this is a book from 1960 where no one talked about this stuff. And I think it's utterly fascinating because Bond's like, is it my place to step in when I see marital problems? 
Hmm. And, and his conclusion is great. Yes. Because he's just like, you know what? He was a jerk. And then he throws his body into the water. Yep, and then it's kind of left open to who actually killed him. Yeah, it's just a great story all around. It is, and it's a great way to end this book. Um, highly recommend reading all of For Your Eyes Only. This book really encapsulates how to write short stories and make them flow with one another. Unlike Octopussy and the Living Daylights, where none of those were meant to be collected as one in one volume, mm -hmm. these all were meant really to, to, to mesh well. So anyway, we get to the movie. For your eyes only. Ro allegedly Roger Moore's last movie. Or was it? We get that a couple of times with the next movies. Is it his last? Well, we could talk about the opening of this is a weird sequel to On Her Majesty's Secret Service with Bond at Tracy's grave. He gets uh, he gets told that there's a helicopter for him and he needs to go to headquarters. Only they find out that Blofeld is controlling the helicopter, but they can't call him Blofeld because they didn't have the rights to the name Blofeld anymore. Or Spectre, for that matter. They didn't have the rights to either of those. So what we get is just the weirdest hijink, Roger Moore hijinks of... Uh, of any of taking control of the helicopter, grabbing Blofeld with the helicopter and dropping him down a chimney. It's the most Roger Moore way of dealing with things, but I kind of love it. Mm -hmm. It's so goofy. But we were talking about how this wasn't necessarily meant to be a Roger Moore film. No, this was supposed to be the start for a new actor. Uh, allegedly, I mean, confirmed. And they asked Timothy Dalton, for example, who declined because he saw Moonraker and he saw the direction they were going. <laughs> Second time Dalton declined, which is so wild to me. Um, yep. And so, yeah, that was essentially just why this opening existed, establishing continuity. This is still the same guy, even though now it's a third new act, you know, actor coming in, playing the part. Mm-hmm. But then Roger Moore was like, okay, you know what? I'm still staying on. I'm going to do this one as well. And the other reason, obviously, Kevin McClory being like, Blofeld belongs to me. Spectre belongs to me. I'm going to make my own Thunderball movie. And uh, Cubby Broccoli was like, we don't need Blofeld. Watch, watch me throw him down a chimney. <laughs> oh, just, just wait till we get... McClory's ideas. Yeah, his magnum opus. That he was willing to remake again. With Dalton, of all people. I really wish that would have happened. That would have actually been awesome. Yeah, that would have been fascinating. But um, we, we now cut to the great, in my opinion, one of the best title sequences for a Bond movie, which we have the singer of the For Your Eyes Only song actually in the title sequence. 
it's, it's a major step up from the effects in Moonraker or Spy Who Loved Me. Everything's a lot clearer. It just looks better. And in my opinion, I think it's one of the best ones they ever did. Hmm. Um, so just in terms of like how technically, you know, how it's technically, made. Technically, it doesn't look like CGI crap. That we've like been the later movies. Tomorrow Never Dies. Yeah. Um, it's up there with Gold... I, I do like GoldenEye's opening too. But mm-hmm. I, this one I think is my favorite. It's not... I would say... I, I even on like the technical side, I think my favorite would still be from Russia with Love because that's it seems so simple mm-hmm. but elegant at the same time. But yeah, yeah, this one is still really well made, and I guess I do have to like applaud him for like including the singer and it doesn't look out of place, mm-hmm. which is like I mean, she, she was an attractive woman, she fits in. Like yeah. imagine like Living Daylights, they're gonna work in Aha. How that would look like. Or uh, View to a Kill, they're gonna uh, put Duran Duran in there. Yeah. I think the only other one that would have really worked would have been Cheryl Crow, I guess. Hmm. Or, even though that song sucks. Song sucks so bad. Yeah, and they had a better alternative. But now they it's the end did. of the song. But Cheryl Crow was popular, so they changed it the last minute. But that's we'll get to that mm-hmm. several episodes from now. Mm-hmm. I guess we can say the song itself. I think it's also fine. It's a love song again. That's the thing with the Roger Moore era. We have yes. like the, the love songs in Roger Moore era. We got the heartbreak songs in the Daniel Craig era. Yeah, well, the the depression songs, as I like to call them. Mm-hmm. Get me. I'm trying to remember what an antidepressant is. More like get me Ambium. I feel like Ambium songs, like the last two of them, like taking Ambium and not sleeping. It's just miserable. Mm-hmm. Especially uh, writings on the wall. Yeah, that might be one of the worst Bond songs ever, and I'm gonna get heat for this. I'm. Fu- I think that I think it's fair. I'm pretty sure that song has always been controversial among fans, because like, it's good, and then the falsetto hits, and the falsetto doesn't fit. And I get like Sam Smith can do that. That's impressive in and of itself. I'm not saying Sam Smith is a bad singer. I would never say that. I think Sam Smith is a fantastic singer, but just it's like. It's like, have you ever seen Joel Schumacher's Phantom of the Opera? No. Okay, so Andrew Lloyd Webber and Joel Schumacher decided to make Phantom of the Opera, which I can't even say it's a Joel Schumacher film because Andrew Lloyd Webber wouldn't let him direct. But the main song, The Phantom of the Opera, um, Andrew Lloyd Webber decided there needed to be guitar riffs in it. And so there's like... Like in the middle of the song, and it's it's so embarrassing. It's like wow. that. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Okay, sounds like a good analogy. It's just like you could show off. I mean, like it doesn't need to be in there. Like, I will yeah. say, go back to "For Your Eyes Only." It's a fine song. Mm-hmm. It's not the most boring song 
um, of the more songs. There's a few that are kind of. I would almost say Moonraker is weaker than this one. Oh yeah, Moonraker feels phoned in. Mm -hmm. Everything in Moonraker feels phoned in. But this this feels this is better. Yeah, and something just as a side note, a couple of weeks ago, this song played on my local radio station when I was driving home, and I was amazed. <laughs> really? Yeah, because them playing Bond songs almost never happens. Once they played the Duran Duran View to a Kill song at my workplace, and I was flipping out. <laughs> okay, I do love that song. Mm -hmm. It's the only thing I love about that movie. But anyway, so this is a weird Bond movie. It feels like a transitional film. It also feels like an end. Because I'm of the opinion that more this was going to be since Moore's contract was up, he was on a film to film basis contract. Um, I think he intended this to be his last Bond movie. Possibly, yeah. I mean, it would have made sense. I would still, I I really love Roger Moore in this film. Me too, but. Overall, the way it feels and it's set up, this would also work just perfectly for a new actor, like it was originally intended. So I'm kind of split on it, because I love that we got Roger Moore in a more... Because this is a great film overall, and it's more grounded, and Moore gets to play it somewhat differently than in his previous films, but still mm -hmm. giving a great performance. So I'm kind of split on this. I, yeah. I agree it would have worked great as an ending for him, like a redemption after Moonraker going too yes. Well, I mean, I think it was initially the end. There wasn't supposed to be a Moonraker. Yeah, obviously, this movie got announced in the end credits of Spy Who Loved Me. So, mm -hmm. And we get some action set pieces, but nothing's as big as Spy Who Loved Me or Moonraker. Yeah, well, not as outrageous because I really loved the you know the action scenes in this movie. Yeah, it feels really well like done. on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Yeah, which I'm makes sense because yeah. it makes sense that it feels that way. Not just because of the opening sequel, um, but also the director is um, what's his name, John Glenn. Mm -hmm who was um, Peter Hunt's protege, so to speak, who obviously directed uh, Majesties, and John Glenn also worked on that one. And this is his first, you know, first time directing a James Bond film, and he would direct every single one up until License to Kill. Yes. That is right. Okay. I like him as a director. Oh, yeah, I think he's really good, and this is like a great start. Oh, yeah. Um, this is one of those scripts that really takes things from Fleming's books, because at this point, they didn't have the rights to Casino Royale. They were out of novels. And they, kinda... and they were not allowed to use anything from Spy Who Loved Me. Yes. So what do you do? Oh, you take things that we didn't use from the books and you throw them in the movie. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that can be a little awkward, but I think this one does it the best. Well, I can't say that. Licensed Kill, I think, does it the best. This mm -hmm. one 
does it really well. But... Yeah, because it essentially merges the two short stories for you as only and the Risiko. And also it throws in, you know, an action scene from the Live and Let Die novel, which fits in perfectly, I would say. Yeah, they make it a little more extreme for the Roger Moore era. And I have things I want to discuss from that whole sequence. Because okay. I had to watch it twice to really look at things, some, dare I say, cinema sins. Mm. But we'll get to that. Um, big change. No M in this. Um, yeah. The actor had passed when they were making it, but before he'd filmed his scenes. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, and then out of respect for Bernard Lee, they just said, we're not going to recast him right away. Uh, we're going to give all his lines to like uh, the Bill Tanner character and like Minister of Defense or whatever, and just say M is on leave. He's not here right now. Yes. And then obviously we get a recast in the next movie, Octopussy. The real, the real thing that gets me in this, and I've heard this in other reviews, is the the Bond money penny flirting is starting to feel forced. I can see that it's bit. not super bad in this. Um, from a view to a well, a view to a kill is where it gets really like uh, because all the actors are in their eighties. Yeah, they're all old. And I don't mind. See, here's the thing. My issue with the Roger Moore era, and at the same time, I have the same issue with um, Never Say Never Again. And I have this issue. I have this issue in No Time to Die, too. When you stick with a Bond actor for so long, you gotta age up the Bond girls. Mm-hmm. So, like, I don't have a problem with Money Penny and Bond flirting because they're close to the same age. Yeah, and I mean that's just a general like vibe between them, even since like Connery, where it's just like, yeah, yeah these same same in age, like these colleagues just having. I wouldn't even call it like romantic flirting. It's clearly just fun between it's, two friendly it's, people. It's, you know, it's a joke. The joke, and they haven't gotten that since Skyfall. Say what you will about Skyfall. One thing they did right is setting up Money Penny and Bond for that universe, which they did nothing with Inspector and No Time to Die. But like they get that. In my opinion, the Brosnan era didn't get that. And uh, Moneypenny is a joke character in that. But this era get like, the Moore era still gets that. It's the only person I have, I, I don't have an issue with Bond flirting with in this. Because the whole theme is Bond's old. Mm-hmm. This is still that era where you can really believe that Bond served in World War II. I mean... Roger Moore was born in 1927. <laughs> He's old. Yes, and he does look older in this one. Yes, and it's, I would still say he looks fine. He's like, in great shape still. Hmm? He can still do his the I call it the Moore action because he never really could fight. Yeah. 
but like he still can well he's not doing a lot of his stunts yeah there's this famous like joke that roger moore is the occasional stand-in for the stuntman yes and that's watching these in hd is so I feel terrible for the filmmakers because they did the best they could for the time. How were they to know that high definition would happen? Yeah, they would have um, tried harder to hide the nipples in the openings. The, <laughs> there's that. <laughs> there's a lot of, not a lot of nudity, but there's quite a bit of nudity in this one. Um, mm -hmm. but you can tell when the stunt people are in. In this. Yeah. Uh, I'm 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 really crapping on this movie, which I don't mean to because this is my favorite Roger Moore film. I think it's my top five favorite Bond films. Mm, that's fair. Um, because everything else, well, with one other thing that I'll, two other things I'll get to, everything else is perfect in this movie. Mm -hmm. Um. We, we hit the, the the stupid Lotus again. Hey, we Johns. There's cars. They're not. They're not cool. They're they're like the most dated looking cars. That's the thing. That's the thing with the '70s had the ugliest stuff. The '70s aesthetic, for the most part, like when it comes to houses, when it comes to technology, it looks stupid. Like yep. everything in Moonraker, just about looks stupid. And dated. But now with this one, you can tell, oh, we are in a different era. And it's getting better, but they yeah. still have the lotuses. But that scene, we can get to it when we get to the scene, but that is one of my favorite moments because that car just gets destroyed. And it's yes. like it's like symbolism, like, oh, remember the fun, like insane things we did with the lotus? Screw mm -hmm. that. No, we gotta oh, get this no. action scene with this regular, really shitty car. Yes. Which I yes. love. That, that is a great scene we will get to. But, um, so Bond, so the big thing is that this codex thing, not even quite sure what it does, but it, it's something the, the, the KGB wants it. Mm -hmm. The, uh, British, um, there's a British boat that had it. It was like a fishing boat that was also like an Intel boat. Mm-hmm. They accidentally hit a mine, and it's a complete accident, which I love. Yeah. Um, which is very different, because I'm so... It's so... We're so used to Spectre, typically, just messing things up. Or super... Like, a Bond villain just blatantly messing things up. Like, we had that for two straight movies. Where we had a villain is going to destroy the world essentially. Mm -hmm. Well, three, because in um, Man with the Golden Gun, they tacked that in, too. Oh, yeah, but that's really a, you know, blink and you miss it, like, who cares? That was... Yeah, yeah but, like, we've had that three films in a row. Mm -hmm. And I love that it's an accident. And they don't have time to hit the self-destruct on the Codex thing, and so it sinks to the bottom of the ocean. The, uh... Our Bond girl's family... They they work for the British Secret Service, kind of in Greece, mm -hmm. which gave you know what this gave me, gave me a Colonel Sun vibe, mm. with a lot of it because a lot of that takes place in Greece. I can see it. 
Um, not in tone. Um, that book's really dark. Really, and really uncomfy. This movie's not so much. But this, these, this poor, lovely, older couple is just gunned down by a helicopter. Yeah. Brutal scene. But it's a great scene when it's we a, get the setup with the Bond girl. Yes, and so now we get why she's invested. She's going to go get revenge, take out this hitman that Bond's being sent. Who, who, okay, I'm trying to remember who is Bond taking orders from? Um, I think it's Bill Tanner and the Minister of Defense. It's the Minister of Defense. Okay, I knew it was Bill Tanner, but they don't actually call him Bill Tanner. I, I don't think so. But it, it is him. Yeah. I think I've heard the actor was like of the opinion that he's actually replacing M, which I can kind of see in the movie because he's for some reason sitting at M's desk doing yes. his work. So, I don't yeah. like that. Nope. That was just a weird, what do we do with the desk? Like, I don't think that's a real cinema sin necessarily. It's just blocking issues. We have to have someone sit at the desk. I thought it'd be funny if Bond sat at the desk. But that that would we're not in that that'd be a Craig thing. Yeah. That wouldn't be a necessarily a Roger Moore thing. But we do get my favorite thing that Roger Moore does, which is he knows everything. Hmm. And so they'll they talk about the thing that's missing. He's like, oh, and he spouts off like exposition. Yeah, that's, that's a staple of the Roger Moore era. And I love he has, it. like yeah, this encyclopedic knowledge. Yes. And I lo- I wish we had gotten a novelization from Christopher Wood. That would have been nice. You know, apparently apparently Christopher Wood wrote a screenplay for this, but it was rejected. And really? they went with uh, Richard Maybaum. Huh. Fascinating. But anyway, so we're bo- both... Uh, Bond goes to this place. He takes the Lotus, which is now orange. Is it? Is it? No, it's I white. I think it's the white. Yes. It's the white one. And I think it's implying that it is the spy who loved me. Lotus. Mm. Or at least it's it's a version of that. That aquatic goofy thing. That car so... I lo- don't get me wrong. I love modern Lotus cars. They're really cool looking. But that 70s aesthetic is still there. And they're just ugly. Mm-hmm. Ugly cars. Ugh. We, I I don't think we get a nice Bond car until The Living Daylights. <laughs> Poor Roger Moore. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was... I'll tell you what, it was luxury for them. Mm. Um, but like with Roger Moore's bizarre suits... The big old collars, you know, 70s aesthetic. It's not my aesthetic, except for bell-bottom jeans. Mm-hmm. I want those to come back for men. But anyway, um, he, he infiltrates this pool party where we get full frontal nudity. Yep. Two and we get, we get a sleazy 80s... Uh, sexual song playing in the background we get so many speedos 
Yes. It, it is just it is just like it's like the beginnings of a porno. And Bond gets captured only to have Bond girl she she sh- shoots an arrow. She's she's got a crossbow in this, which, which is, is awesome. And, and she kills the guy when he doesn't die. It is a weird cut. There's a few really bizarre cuts. Yeah, that cut is great because we see him in the background. He's about to jump and in the forefront, Bond is being taken away and he blocks him in the background. And in that second when he jumps and we don't see him because Bond is walking, apparently he gets hit and then he falls dead in the water. Because it it would have gotten an R rating if we had seen the penetration of the Obviously. So (laughs) that, that that one's better than there's a slap scene in this movie that is weird weirdly edited but we'll get to that that's that's in the climax but uh bond ends up escaping only to have the henchman try to open his car and the blows the 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 car blows up yep and so they have to take this weird i don't even know what car it is is it a peugeot I think I looked it up. I think it's a Citroen. Okay. It looked like a Volkswagen. Yeah, oh. that's what I was thinking. But it's this really like goofy looking small little yellow car that has no gadgets, nothing special about it. It doesn't even have a lot of horsepower. No, but we get this entire action scene with it and I love it. Mm-hmm. Like I said, it's like a symbolic oh, remember the Lotus and all the gadgets? Mm-hmm. Forget about it. We're no, going it back matter. to basic. Yeah, and I love the action sequence with it. Yeah, I mean, they I was... flip it upside down. It gets messed up. Oh, it's so destroyed at the end of it. It looks like like if you're driving through GTA and you crash into things. That's the type of damage it takes. You know what it reminds me of? You ever seen Commando with Arnold Schwarzenegger? Yes. When he he has he takes the Bronco that has all the all the the part engine parts are ripped out of it, and he just coasts it down the cliff. At the beginning, <laughs> oh man, it's like that. It, it, I mean, like they flip over the the car flips over. They switch who's driving because initially she's driving, and I, I oh, thought yeah. that was pretty progressive for these movies. But he Bond, of course, has to take over, which is fair because, I mean, yeah, he's the got more wasn't going experience. Mm-hmm. He's got more experience, but um, but she still got her moment, even when he's driving. Yeah, so no, you know, is... go forwards then go backwards. This is really the which first also makes time. which also uh, that doesn't feel forced, for example, because no. it's like, of course, she knows how this car works, and he doesn't because it's this type of car. Yeah. Um, it's the, really the first time we see Bond girl holding her own with Bond. Maybe, but yeah, I think that's just a big thing with this character, Melina Havelock. She really much doesn't even feel like a love interest necessarily. She feels very much like equal with yes. her whole revenge plot and everything. I think yeah. that's great. It's a great setup mm-hmm. and her story throughout investigating on her own. And I think that works really well yes. um i i like it i like it because like we've had female agents i mean i'll take it back 
Spay Love Me is really the first one where we're supposed allegedly we have an equal to Bond as the love interest. But to me, they all because it was the 70s, they always found some sort of way to nerf the Bond girl so the Bond would look awesome. Hmm. Like Bond's always gotta rescue them. Um or for Holly Goodhead, she just doesn't do anything. Like ever. Yeah. But in this one with Melina, she has like her entire arc with like which I think is taken from the short story where Bond tries to convince her like if she tries to murder him in, in revenge, that wouldn't be good for her. Yes. Uh the Chinese have a saying when going after revenge, dig two graves. Exactly. And and it, in my opinion, it works more, no pun intended, in the film than it does in the book. Because mm-hmm. Bond has gotten his revenge and he got nothing out of it. In the, in the modern era, if we had had that, they would have dwelled on it. But I like that they don't dwell on it. Like the whole Blofeld thing doesn't matter anymore. I mean, it's been so long since he even seen Blofeld. It's been like a decade. You know, that's actually interesting, like a thematic element to tie it in with the rest of the film. Mm -hmm. I know you didn't catch on to that. Not not consciously, but yeah, you're completely right. I I just love it. Like, um, we do... We get our second Star Wars connection in this film. Yeah. First one we didn't mention, uh, not Blofeld in the beginning, is played by Lobot. That's right, yes. Uh, so we have Lobot, and then we have the captain on... Um, oh God, uh, that's leading the AT-ATs in Empire. Oh yeah, G- General Veers? General Veers, that's right. Yeah, General Veers is in this. Also, Donovan from Last Crusade, or second Indiana Jones, uh, like actor, because of course we had Sean Connery, mm-hmm. which um, it's so funny how many people in Star Wars are in the Bond films. Because I for- totally forgot. First of all, I didn't know Lobot was in this period. Because you don't even see his face. Yeah, and I don't even think he's credited as, at the end because they didn't want to credit the character as Blofeld because of the lawsuit. Funny. They should have done it like back in the day, you know, from Russia with Love when it was like Blofeld and the actor in the credits, it was like question marks. Yeah, they might have. Yeah, they should have done the opposite. Credit the actor and then who does he play the character? Question mark, question mark, question mark. Fair enough. Um, I'm thinking here. So, I'm trying... We end up... Is this all in Greece? I think this is still in Greece, yeah. It's all in, like, one place. Which is nice, because, like... Moonraker was literally a globe-trotting thing. Yeah. Eventually, they flew around the, the Earth... So it's nice that it's all in one place. But uh, Bond's trying to uh, meets with Greece intelligence 
basically the uh, Felix. Oh no, Knight. that guy was Italian. He was Ital- Italian. What was his name again? Uh, uh, he's basically Felix, but for the Italians. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Uh, we get a new Lotus, which is orange. Which they don't do anything with it, and I like that. Hmm. We already got our, our car chase for the, the film. We don't need another one. Mm-hmm. But uh, we, we meet our, our Bond villain, who we don't think is the Bond villain, who's a smuggler? Yeah. Um, who also has a protege ice skater who's into Bond, but Bond's not into her, and I like that. Yeah, that's because a great element. Because she's a brat. She's a mm-hmm. BB, the most obnoxious character since uh, the, the the Southern Sheriff. Oh, J.W. Pepper. J.W. Pepper. BB's really obnoxious. Mm-hmm. On purpose, clearly. But yeah, oh. I, I still think she's better than Pepper. Well, yeah. I think most people are. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of these days we'll have to do a top five most obnoxious Bond side characters. Like uh, all of the gangsters in um, Diamonds Are Forever. Oh, God, yeah. But yeah, so she she's into Bond. Bond's not into her because she's basically like a teenager. I I don't. The actor doesn't look like a teenager, but it's clear they're making her look like young. So I think that's what the implication is. Yeah, I took her as like early twenties or like nineteen-ish range. Well, she's she's naive, and Bond doesn't want that, like at all. Yeah, and, and it has the great, the great, the greatest line ever, because she's trying to seduce him. She's yeah, naked she, in the bed, and Bond. Yeah, she's naked but, in the bed, and Bond is like, "Just get your clothes on, and I'm gonna buy you an ice cream." <laughs> and, and only more could really deliver that line. Yep, like that's a very Roger Moore. Mm-hmm. And what I love about it, it's like. We're going to get to it when we get to View to a Kill, but both this movie and the next one, Octopussy, they subtly allude to the fact that he's getting older. And mm-hmm. they are, like an Octopussy, like Maud Adams, obviously an older lady as the Bond girl, which is nice. Mm-hmm. And yes. in this one, they the Bond girl, Melina, is like actually like a build-up character. And even though there is a clear age difference, it works better with yes. her. And then they insert this BB character, which is like the what people think of Bond girls. I yes. Guess. And, and it's it, almost it, like they are making fun of the fact, like, we know Roger is old, but we are self-conscious. Like, we know what's going on. Yeah. If this had been Roger Moore in um, Live and Let Die, he would have. Yeah. Definitely. But he's he's old now. Like, it's it's so fascinating. Because we're we're at we're getting to where I have issues with well I have an issue with the Walther PPK can we just get into that I don't know where right. this is gonna fit the Walther PPK I don't know if you're familiar with bullet calibers and stuff so when Fleming had this issue when he had Bond with the Beretta the 
Braddock fired a 25 caliber bullet. That is a tiny, tiny bullet. Um, and the the we talked about this in the Doctor No review where he gets the he gets the Walther. Well, that was a compromise because uh, someone who was actually in the British Secret Service or in the British military said he would be carrying a Smith and Wesson revolver. And Fleming's like, well, I don't want that. I want I want him carrying an automatic. So that's where we get the Walther PPK, which fires a nine millimeter short. Also in America, it's called a 380. Basically, it's the same bullet size as a nine millimeter, but it doesn't have uh, the shell and the gunpowder's less. And 380 is considered the bare minimum, especially nowadays. And even in here, in the 80s, is the bare minimum for self-defense. It's not a very powerful round. And the Walther PPK isn't a very powerful gun. And we get this in the next... I'll talk about this with Octopussy and Never Say Never Again, because they do... They upgrade him to the Walther P5, which was a 9mm handgun. Same capacity... About the same, a little bigger, but Roger Moore and Sean Connery were very tall men, so like it fits their hand better. It's more comfortable. But then, but then suddenly, when we get to a view to a kill, we're back to the Walther PPK with no explanation, and we stay with the Walther PPK until Tomorrow Never Dies in the nineties. But here's the thing: the Walther P five came out in the seventies. The British uh, military adopted it in the either the late 70s or early 80s so like we're at a point where the walther pbk does not make any sense at all and then to make matters worse I, this is a rant this is something that really bothers me about the bond films because the bond films especially at this point if we're paying so much attention to how daniel craig physically fights when he gets in fist fights and is grappling and all this stuff that's like jason Bourne meets john wick why is why is he carrying the Walther PPKS? Why why do we go from back from the P99, a modern? Well, it was it was a little outdated by the time Quantum of Solace came out, but it's a striker fired nine millimeter pistol. Why are we going back to the PPK? I mean, in No Time to Die, he barely even uses it at the end. They give him a a Sig Sauer P226, but, like, why? Why are we using the PPK other than nostalgia reasons? It makes no sense to me. No military, no secret service that I'm aware of still uses 380 anything. Hmm. Don't get me wrong, Walther PPK is an absolute beautiful, beautiful handgun. But their bond that that's not something he would carry. It doesn't. It's now at the point. Well, now that we're in the eighties and we're really starting to see compact handguns being a thing, it makes no sense why he has it. it it's not effective. I mean, he's shooting through windshields, which that's not possible with most bullets from a handgun. The reason Dirty Harry carried a Smith and Wesson 20, 29 um, uh, 
44 Magnum. I'm almost done with my soapbox, Noah. He looks very bored right now. <laughs> but the reason he carries Smith & Wesson 29 uh, 44 Magnum is he could shoot someone through a windshield while a car's driving. You can't shoot someone through a windshield with a Walther PPK. You could hit the windshield. It wouldn't. Pro- it would bounce off and go someone else and probably hit a bystander. But like, <laughs> you-, you see what I mean? It doesn't make any sense. Hmm? Rant done. I'm done. All right. All I can add is I don't even remember the PPK in the Brosnan era. I just remember him running around with machine guns. Oh no, he has the PPK in Goldeneye through the whole thing. Oh okay. Um, okay, that he- makes sense. Yeah. That one was more. And he gets the P99 at in the novelization. Q gives him the P99 in the beginning. In the movie, he gets it from Wei Lin. Okay. And he's like, I've been asking Q for these for a while. Like making a joke that this there's no reason to have the PPK anymore. It's just so it's now out of date, is what I'm getting at. All right. Which I guess Bond being older he's out of date but i don't know anyway where were we uh the villain bb sheriff pepper oh well we're about to get to the greatest ski chase in a bond movie oh even better than majesties well majesties in my opinion goes for a little too long but what about the great opening in view to a kill oh with cow what was it it's the Beach Boys song. Yeah. No. Um, I love pretty much every ski chase in a Bond movie. It's my favorite thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never skied in my life, but I've always wanted to. But this one's my favorite because there are no gadgets. And Bond nearly loses. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, I, lo- I love I love it as well, especially the end of it. Yes. Should, should I spoil why? Because Bond crashes with his skis at one point. And then yes. the bad guy who's on a motos- motorcycle also crashes in a barn. And his thing is broken. His gun his... doesn't work. So he's just <laughs> Bond escapes with his skis. And the villain, the henchman, is so angry. First he throws his gun at him. Doesn't do anything. <laughs> and then he picks up his motorcycle and throws it at Bond. Yeah, that That's the thing. So there's a lot of motorcycles... In this movie, Bond never rides one, but he nearly gets run over by motorcycles several times in this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he gets basically so BB's alleged boyfriend is a KGB member disguised as one a uh, cross country skier that does you know the cross country skiing everyone where uh, they shoot the targets with the twenty two rifle. Mm-hmm. So he's he's an incredible marksman. So he's Bond's equal, essentially, because Bond's Bond's a marksman. He's a marksman, and um, Bond's trying to figure out who he is. He's with the the villain that was paying the hitman that um, that was killed in the beginning. Yeah, the geeky looking guy with the glasses. Yes, so they're they're in league together with this Codex. Um. And Bond, Bond, Bond gets chased on his skis by two motorcyclists and another ski. It just keeps building and building. 
And I love it because it doesn't take itself serious. It takes itself seriously some of the time when it needs to, and it's fun when it needs to. Whereas yeah. like on Her Majesty's, it's terrifying, especially when he escapes Blofeld's mm-hmm. hideout. Like that's a terrifying scene, and I love it. And then him and Tracy like skiing to escape. Also, it's played more fun, but it is kind of scary. This, it goes from scary to goofy to just just weird. I mean, at one point, there's a Roger Moore loses both his ski poles. In this, um, he ends up he ends up jumping into a bobsled. Um, track which i think is another nod to on her majesty's secret service oh yeah and the motorcycle gets into the bob's sled track too and it goes on and on and on until we get to the climax where it's literally they both crash and bond just crashed less so he he get he's able to escape and then we get the ski uh, not the ski, the uh, hockey fight. Oh yeah, that one is also great. That's great. Where Bond meets up with BB, and then some guys disguised as hockey players um, jump him. Yeah. First they start him. playing actual hockey until yes. BB and the other guy leaves, and then they start. Then lights go out. They start attacking Bond. And my favorite part is that is a good comedy moment that works he, because he defeats them, beats them up, and throws them into like the, you know, the thing. Yeah. And then it shows like one point for this side, and then at the end all three points because he defeated all three of them. Yeah, he hits the last one with the zamboni, the, the vehicle that smooths the ice out. Oh, we didn't mention the other goofy Roger Moore moment, which is in the bobsled. Where the whole bobsled team looks at Roger Moore and he, he does this close-up because, you know, Roger Moore didn't, like, really do a lot of those stunts. But he would always be on the blue screen and you could always tell it was a blue screen. Um, mm-hmm. Which cracks me up every time. It's so, so goofy. Uh, the, the, the use of blue screens in these early Bond movies, I get that that was the time but they all look bad. Some of them work. I think the car chase is a good one that works oh, for the yeah. most part. Yeah. It's just that the scene has to be good so you don't notice it. Mm-hmm. Um, but we get... Gosh, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to think here. We end up with uh, Bond meets up with our Bond villain, and the Bond villain misleads him into thinking another guy, our smuggler we're going to team up with, is the Bond villain. So Columbo. Columbo. Uh, uh, Bond seduces his mistress. Well, first, we get to see Bond play cards, which I don't think is a thing we've seen in any of the Roger Moore films. Hmm. I don't think we've seen Bond gamble since Connor. I know we do later in Octopussy, I know they go to a casino in Spy Who Loved Me, but I don't think they actually gamble in the film. They do in the novelization, but I don't think he gambles in the film. Which is a key thing for Bond. Like, from the Flemings books, is Bond's a gambler. 
he doesn't even care if he wins or loses because money doesn't mean anything to him. He just donates when he wins. He donates it to a charity. Um, but we see him playing cards, which is fun. Uh, we see him seduce someone close to his age. This is a woman that's yeah. Again, older. again, they are aware. Mm-hmm. And um, she gets run over by a dune buggy. Which yes, unintentionally hilarious. Yeah, it's it's so brutal. It's so, I mean, it's funny because there's no blood because they couldn't have blood. But again, our rating. It does remind me of the dogs eating that poor helicopter pilot in Moonraker. Yeah, I would say that scene was way more intense. Yes, because that that movie is a farce, except for that. <laughs> But Bond ends up um, he ends up fighting with the Doom Buggy people only to be captured by... Which we have to point out right now, because that's where he gets killed. One of the henchmen, he doesn't even have a name, I think, is played by Charles Dance. Yes, that's right. And I, it was nuts when I realized. I only realized it in that scene when he gets killed. I was like, this looks like a young Charles Dance. That's impossible. That's wild. I didn't notice. I I, I did notice that in this watch along, but I couldn't remember his name. And Bond's captured by the smugglers. He ends up going on an opium raid with them. Of the actual Bond villains lair, which is where the Risico thing comes in. Oh yeah. That also that already came in beautifully in the restaurant scene Mm -hmm. when Bond is sitting there with Christatos, who's the main villain who yes. double crosses Bond, who he mm-hmm. thinks is the good guy at first. And they are sitting at one table. Columbo and his mistress Liesel are at the other table. And then we get like Christatos tries to convince Bond, you may have to kill Columbo, you know, are you ready for that? And then we see like Columbo has had like this setup with like a recorder. And so he, he listens to what he... they said. That's straight up from the book, from the short story. That's right. Yeah, and that's when we get Columbo wanting to talk to Bond and revealing, no, I'm actually, I'm a bad guy, but not that bad. Like, it's Christatos you want. Yes. And I really like Columbo. I think he's in the same vein as, like, uh, Tracy's dad in Majesties. And I think that was done on purpose. Oh, definitely. So we, we get... We get the raid. The raid's great. It's a fun action scene. Considering Bond didn't kill anyone in Moonraker he straight up murders several people Mm -hmm. like straight up just shoots a bunch of people, blows people up Um, later we we get get to the best kill in the movie the best kill which is we got on my rant about him shooting through the windshield of a car with the Walther but there's a whole sequence where he's running upstairs with Seth Roger Moore running up the stairs is it actually him? I th- it looks like him. Oh, that explains because it was like this the noise in the background when he was running. It's like, <sighs> it's probably actually Roger. <laughs> it's the you only. Can... <laughs> Which, credit to him, that's a lot of stairs to run. Yeah, up. I love how it cuts back and forth between the bad guy running away in his car, like this high speed change, and then it's like just like Roger, <laughs> I have to get up the stairs. It's intense. It does work for me. Yeah. You, you can't interpret it as funny. 
That's you like... definitely can, especially if you think, oh, is this actually Roger and not the stuntman? I think it's him. It looks like him. Oh, there's some there's some good trickery, camera trickery to make the stuntman look like Roger in this movie. Um, some of it, it's easy to tell because of high definition. Um, but we get the guy crashes his car. He's hanging over a cliff. And Bond said, Bond throws a key into the car and kicks the car down the cliff so the dude falls to his death. Mm-hmm. And I, I love it. That is Roger's darkest moment as Bond. Yes. And next to him shooting uh, Stromberg and the balls in Spy Who Loved Me. Yes. And it's very Connery. Mm-hmm. And I I do appreciate it. Yeah. And and I mean the... that scene was so good they ripped it off with Daniel Craig in No Time to Die. Yes. With the famous I... scene, I heard a brother, his name was Felix Leiter, and then you know, kicks the car on the guy. Yeah, I've forgotten about that. Yeah. Because apparently Craig is a fan of Roger Moore. Huh. Yeah, but yeah, create your own epic moments. That's anyway. Yeah, uh, we we moved to my the other big cinemas and the scuba diving, setting up the oxygen tank. So he goes. He goes. There's the big archaeological scuba dig that there are Bond girls supervising. And Roger Moore dives there, they meet up, and she leaves her scuba tank at the site. I get why it's there, because they need it uh, during the action set piece that comes after this. But in, in, in world, what is the logic of leaving that there? I took it as, um, oh, I'm going to go, we're going to go up now. Mm-hmm. For, for like a talk or something and then when I go down I can swim up until that point like with no problem without like having to need like oxygen but then I'm gonna take it like I already have it here I don't have to put it on when I'm up it's it's a flimsy excuse but I guess and we get into the goofiest close-ups which are not underwater but they try to make it look like it oh, when Roger swims in and we get a close yes. up of his face. Yeah. Well, both of them. None of them are under. I I noticed it. It wasn't Roger. I noticed it on her because her makeup's on. Oh, okay. And you wouldn't have that. That would have all washed off. Obviously, okay, okay, that makes sense. Which they um, tr- they they somehow tricked me. I will admit. Okay. Well, you're watching on on DVD. It looks fine. Oh yeah, it did. On Blu-ray, it looks wrong. Because all the blues are enhanced. And this movie's really blue. <laughs> so a lot of things don't look correct. Um, so I need to watch this in 4K and see. But um, it's, they end up taking a submarine and they get the codex, which leads to an awesome like mech fight. Yeah, with the this awesome like suit that was set up in the uh, heist scene, you know, when they attack Cristado's base. Yes. 
and they get in a cool fight. I'll leave it vague because y'all need to check it out. It's it's pretty intense. Mm-hmm. And then One they get the in a submarine fight. Which is also awesome and intense. Yes. And then I, mean, I guess that's the best I guess that's the best underwater action scenes we had since Thunderball. Yeah, probably. And even Thunderball in comparison was slower, definitely. Well yeah. But this one is just like bam bam bam. Yeah. With different scenarios. And then then we get to reenacting the climax of Live and Let Die, the novel. Mm-hmm. Bond, they're going to be dragged underwater through a coral reef so the sharks will eat them. Mm-hmm. Which, it's 90% the stunt people. Ten per, any close-ups, it's them, but we we get more of this goofy close-up underwater effect, which doesn't look right. Um, but it's a good it's a good sequence. But like the close-ups look really fake, like they mm. look like they're from the fifties. Ouch. Like in high definition, it doesn't look right at all. And I say this with a lot of these movies. I think until we get to the nineties, movies are gonna, the movies are going to look funky in high mm-hmm. def. I mean, some of like the early Connery films are not in the right aspect ratio. They're in a really weird. Up until Thunderball, none of them are in widescreen. Mm-hmm. It's a really weird aspect ratio it's not quite it's not four by eight but it's it's not 16 by nine it's like 12 by something it's it's really it's really hard to explain but we go from that to the climax of the film yeah where villains got the codex going to give it to uh general gorgoroff gogol gogol thank you general yeah who is i love i love him as a character in oh, every so film fun. when he shows up. And he's... in this one, his intro is great. Oh, because yeah. I... We get this awesome scene. So first we get the British. They learn, oh, this this thing is missing. That's going to cause us problems. And then the Russians, we cut to him in his office. And it's the same one from Spy Who Loved Me. It's like this yeah. giant, gothic, empty room. And it's just his desk in the forefront. And like in the background, there's his secretary. And he gets the call like, oh, yeah, Sure, we're gonna get that. Yeah. And then he's just flirting with his secretary throughout the rest of the scene. Yes. Um but Bond and smugglers, they all end up infiltrating a base. There's a great rock climbing sequence. Mm-hmm. Just fun. Um it really just because it's very there's not a lot of extras in it, and I love that. Mm-hmm. There aren't a lot of people. It's not like a big army. It's not Spy Who Loved Me, where we have all these people shooting at one another. It's just, it's very small scale. Yeah. Bond throws a guy off a cliff uh, after he slaps BB. It, no, no. Bondville slaps BB, and it's a weird jump cut. It's sped up, and it's a jump cut. So I guess he slapped her really soft. Like, she's... He, they, his hand makes contact with her, but I think he just did this. And Probably. Like, and so they speed it up, and then they cut, and she's on the ground. And it's just bizarre. It's a really weird edit. 
and um, her our Bond girl does not get her revenge. Yeah, and but Colombo takes out his enemy. Yes, and that's nice. And Bond throws the the codex thing off the cliff. I keep calling it codex. I can't remember what it's called. Something with an A, Ector? Yeah. So something. Or a Lector or something. I don't know. It, it's it's a it basic. It's like a decoder. I'm looking it up right now just because why not? You know, it kind of reminds A-tech. me. A-tech. A-T-A-C. The A-tech. It, it reminds me of the thing in From Russia with Love. Oh yeah, the Spectre device. Yeah, and he Bond throws it off a cliff, and we get just the best reaction of no one has it now. Yeah, it again, epic matter. General Google moment. He just laughs and leaves, and yeah, That's case cool. closed. Well, then we get the terrible Margaret Thatcher scene. Yeah, that's the weak point. The weak ending. It's so dated. It's the most dated thing in this whole... Aside from the, the Lotus. <laughs> it's the most dated thing. Um, and we get the parrot talking to... Margaret Thatcher. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Then we get some naked swimming. With Bond e- and... E- Melina. Yes. Yeah. Melina. And it worked. It's, it's a solid movie. It's a really... Mm-hmm. One of my favorites. I think Moore's best film as Bond. I, I would agree. I think this may be his best performance next to yes. Spy Who Loved Me, where he first got, you know, became he finally his own got persona. comfortable with it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Doesn't try to be Connery. Yeah. And I think this one works. Again, I'm wondering because we know what comes later with his actual last one. If this would have been better if it was the beginning of like the Dalton era because I can see him in this this seems more like the type of film that would suit him but see, I would I would argue the Dalton era should have started with Octopussy hmm. which was almost a thing yeah okay so anyway but yeah again I would say Roger great performance different than his usual stuff I like that it's more grounded and small scale and yeah. what I noticed, because a lot of people told me, like, this movie is boring because it's so low scale. I disagree, especially on this I rewatch, which I just did today. Mm-hmm. The first half, especially, is really fast paced. Like, it immediately grabs my attention. And every couple scenes, there's a new awesome action scene. And it's a lot of variety as well. Like I said, the car chase, we get the ski stuff. Yes. Like it's and then the revenge plot with Melina, which is something different. And I think that's maybe my critique. I think the actress is uh, great, probably subjective opinion, the most attractive Bond girl of Moore's era. Um, and I really like her plot. Like her as a character works, not mm-hmm. just as a love interest, but just like the setup when her parents get killed and it zooms in on her eyes and she looks into camera. I love it. I think at the end there could have been more done with it yeah because like you said you appreciate that it's not like this big emotional stuff which i agree with thinking what they would do today Mm. 
there would be like sad music playing and they would you know wouldn't work cheesy dialogue and stuff yeah it would so, be like quantum of solace oh yeah that that that's the prime example of that where like some of that's a little satisfying but it's so incompetently done that mm. it just it's just a mess meanwhile daniel craig's getting attacked with a fire axe but yeah. anyway anyway that that was for your eyes only great film and yeah great first outing for john glenn as a director yes 